Well, if you'll grab your Bibles. Excellent. I'm glad you have your Bible. I'm assuming that was my son. Yes, it was. Okay. We're going to be in the book of John. We're actually going to finish chapter one. I know, only five weeks. It's a miracle. I know. But last week, we talked about John the Baptist. And he is a man in, in somewhere around A.D. 29, uh, maybe a little earlier. And even Josephus writes about John the Baptist. And if we study Jewish history, you would want to know about this guy. He was an important figure. And somewhere around 28, 29, or 30 A.D. was the year of Jubilee. And what the year of Jubilee was, it was a, 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 a sacrificial year. And this is where every seven years, everyone was supposed to work less. Wouldn't that be awesome? Every seven years, we just take a break, right? And we don't have to, you know, but uh, <coughs> what's interesting is we don't have anything in the Bible that shows us that they fully obeyed this command that the Lord laid out. Isn't that amazing? But we do know that, that there is less to do during this time. That's what it's supposed to be. And this, this might explain, maybe they did it and it just wasn't written down. This might explain why there was so many people um, in the, the capital, uh, I say the capital, in Jerusalem at the time of the year. And, and everybody was there. And um, there was a lot of people around. But, uh, uh, you know... It, and they came, and John was out there preaching the message, and his crowds were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the leadership showed up to find out what's going on. They want to hear the message. So, you know, but some people came for the show. Some people came for the fireworks, so the leadership showing up, man, they're going to lay in the John. Hey, let's go watch this, you know? John would say that he, or what we always wanted to say out loud, but we're too gracious to do that. You know what I'm saying? Those little things that go, maybe it's just my mind, but those little things, those little snide comments that come into my head, and I'm thinking, oh, and I'm trying not to say it. But John wasn't like that. He just said it. So as we studied last week, they showed up and they questioned John. They were like, well, who are you? Even though they knew who he was, because his dad was of the priestly line, uh, and, and they knew this. Uh, and, and so they're really asking, who have you become? Are you the Messiah? Are you the, you know, prophet? Are you Elijah? And he would say no to all these things. And later on, uh, Jesus would actually tell us that John was Elijah. So he either didn't know that he was Elijah, okay, or... He didn't care to talk to him about it. Like, I just don't care. I'm just the voice of one person. Don't worry about me, guys. I'm the one who paves the way for the true king to come. And, and if you think I have things to say about holiness and righteousness, wait until he shows up. Especially when it comes about religion and the temple. We're going to talk about this today. Now, before we get there, I, I do want to mention... This scene that we're going to be talking about today, this history, has happened twice in the temple, both times by Jesus. One at the beginning of his ministry, and one the very last week of his ministry. So I want to say that up front, because some of you might start reading this, and you go, yeah, yeah, he did this, he did this. 
but you're thinking of the last week because that's usually what people concentrate on, okay? So this is where we pick it up uh, today in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who, who I meant, or this is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Jerusalem. Then John gave us testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. John's disciples follow Jesus, uh, follow Jesus. The next day, uh, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, "Look, the Lamb of God." Now, how many of you have heard that phrase before? The Lamb of God. Most everybody here, okay. For those maybe you, you haven't ever heard it or those that were hearing it for the first time, it, it's kind of a weird phrase. John kind of invented this phrase. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But no one before John the Baptist has ever really said that. And while John was in the wilderness, he was reading the book of Isaiah, we think, and he reads Isaiah 53 where it says, uh, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he also says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. So John is starting to put two and two together. Or a whole bunch more together. You know what I'm saying? As he's going back to the history and looking for the Messiah and so forth, he starts putting it all back together. And, and you know, it, wouldn't it be unusual to call a man a lamb? I mean, I, personally, I'd, I'd like lion, right? Or bear, or dragon. Okay, no, 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 not dragon. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Something more manly, right? You know, I'm dating myself here. Tim Allen, right? You know, not a little lamb. I mean, come on. It would be, it would be weird to, to look at somebody and go, you little lamb. It, it, we, yeah, exactly. We'd laugh, wouldn't we? Somebody said that about somebody else. Now, it would also be weird in the first century Jewish mind for them to hear that. Why is that? Well, when they thought of a lamb... What did they think about? They thought about sacrifice. They thought about Passover. They thought about the Day of Atonement or the temple. So let's talk about that for a second. A lamb was for sacrifice. Therefore, millions of lambs were sacrificed from when the temple started until A.D. 70 when the temple was completely destroyed. Every morning and every evening over the years, a lamb would be brought in to be sacrificed 
for the covering of sins. And this is unusual for them to think about, but, but you know, for us to think about, but not for them. This is how our sins got covered. Lambs were sacrificed and the blood was sprinkled on the altar and they were used for so many different things. On the day of atonement, there was two lambs. And sometimes a goat would be used, they were interchangeable, but one lamb would be sacrificed and everyone would cheer. Why? Their burdens, their sins have all been released off their shoulders for at least the next 20 minutes, right? Until they went out and sinned again. And they felt really good. And then the, the priest would take the other lamb and put his hands on him and pray, and put, to put our sins on it. And then he would go out to the wilderness and let it go. This is where we, we get the term scapegoat. So when the scapegoat was released, the people would say, our sins are covered and our sins are released. So they would know, they would really know that, that, that at some point the, the sins really weren't taken away. The sins were just covered and they were put on something else that was released. And when you say the lamb to Israel, they go back to Genesis 22 when Abraham took his son Isaac up to the mountain as God had promised him that he would take care of him. But he said, go and sacrifice your son, and the Lord would, would take him, uh, or, or he, would, uh, he would take him up to Mount Moriah to do this. And the Lord really wasn't asking him to kill his own son, because the Lord knew that he would, he would provide something to be sacrificed in the place. This is a word picture of God taking our sins to the mountaintop to sacrifice for our sins. Or they would be thinking of the Passover when they sacrificed the lamb and put his blood on the doorpost in Egypt to protect the firstborn. In Exodus 12, plagues were coming all over Egypt and Moses went and said, let my people go. So then the, you know, the Pharaoh was like, no. So the plagues happened. What were they? Well, they were all created around the Egyptian gods. You worship frogs, you like frogs, I'm going to give you frogs. You love the Nile, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the Nile away from you. You're not going to want to fish in that Nile. You love the sun, I'll give you darkness. God still does this today, I believe. Uh, you know, oftentimes the hassles and struggles that we may go through right before we give our heart to the Lord, he will start messing with what we think are gods, our own gods in our lives. Now that doesn't sound very loving, but in reality it really is. He's just trying to wake us up. And this God that, that we may think is, is a God is way too small. And we have to be woken up to that. So as God, he says, I'm going to take away your firstborn, your next Pharaoh, because I want to show you who controls the world, that Pharaoh is not a God. And because of the Lamb's blood over the door stops, Israel was not affected. He said, when I see the blood, I'm going to pass right over you. In fact, very soon after John makes the statement, they would actually go to Passover. John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all of a sudden, John is connecting the two, Jesus and the Lamb. And this was incredible blasphemy to the Jews. If the Romans hadn't killed John, the Jews would have. He is saying a man will be the lamb, and it will be the lamb of God. 
God's going to allow that lamb to be killed and his blood to be spread around. And that blood will not cover or protect, but it would take away the sins of the world. It was for all time. It wasn't just a little covering. It wasn't just a little protection. This was for forever. So if you'd like to study this further, look at Hebrews 9 and 10, because it's important for us to understand that the baseline of us being followers of Jesus, the foundation, what we call a Christian, is to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Would be, you know, would be someone who understands the reasons why Jesus died on the cross. It's important for us to understand why Jesus died on the cross. It was for every single sin that you and I have. You see, when we get religion that turns into a relationship, we start enjoying church. We start enjoying different ministries. We start enjoying the worship. We start enjoying taking care of the little kids over in the nursery that we need at least two more people to sign up for. Like how I threw that one in there? We got two. We need two more. We start enjoying the relationships. We start enjoying um, studying the word and, and come to find out, you know, studying the word is, is, is also about the relationships that we have with each other. But once we pick a church, it's important for us not to stop there, not to stop because, you know, I like it because they're so moral or they love the word. What is important for us to understand is the baseline of why we meet. Because John the Baptist just said, the lamb of the world has taken away our sins. He's taken them away. I accept you as a sacrifice for my sin, we say. Not for my guilt of sin. The guilt of sin sometimes can be a good thing because it can get us to go away from sin. We always say, oh, well, you know, give it to God and all the guilt will be go, uh, go away. And, and I understand the concept of what that's saying, okay? So don't get me wrong. It's not a bad concept. But sometimes the guilt is the Holy Spirit in our head going, Alan, what are you doing? Go back the other direction. Don't do this. Don't go through this sin. That's a good thing because it drives us back to the Lord. But the shame, he takes the shame away, the shame of our sin. You see, what is really interesting about the Lord is he doesn't come in and say, hey, I know life is tough. Just give me a hug. He doesn't do that. It's no big deal what you've done because it is a big deal to God. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is to accept that he is the Lamb. He's the one that takes away my sins. He's the one that's paid for my sins. He takes it away. The Bible says he takes it away as, as far as the east is from the west. He's cast my sins away. Now, back then, they didn't understand the whole globe concept for the most part. Many people actually thought the world was flat. They would say, you know, you can't go there. You know, I mean... <laughs> You know, a lot of times we'll, we'll say when we're irritated with something, with somebody, we just say, don't go there. Just, no, just don't go there. That's kind of how they, they looked at the earth, uh, being a flat, you know. Um, but with my sin, you just can't go there because Jesus took them away as far as the east from the west. So when Satan tries to bring it up and throw it in your face, or a friend tries to throw it in your face, you can say, you know, in your mind, now you don't have to be rude to them, but you can just think in your mind, no, I, I, that's been covered. 
That's already been taken care of. I don't have to worry about that. That's been cast away. It doesn't have a fishing line tied to it. And when I stand before God, God's not going to grave me on a curve. It's a pass-fell. And this is why we need to think about this. Now, John starts recognizing Jesus as the Lamb. And you will see him push his followers toward Jesus. And, and this is probably a little painful for him, uh, for the most part, but this is his assignment. No matter how many guys, no matter how many follow him, his job is to push them toward Jesus. And I think we've forgotten that in, in a lot of our churches. I mean, it's good to have small churches. It's good to have big churches. It's good to have all those because there's some things that we can do in a small church that a large church can't do relationship-wise. But there's a lot of things that a large church can do that we can't do. But, I mean, they can have an adoption ministry. It's a little hard to have an adoption ministry in our church, right? In a church of 10,000, you can have an adoption ministry. But I think in some large churches, they've forgotten that their job is to push people to Jesus. And instead, they're pulling people to them. And that's a tragedy of the modern church, I think. This was John's assignment. I got a lot of people following, but look, the lamb. And he starts pushing them that way. Verse 37, it says, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them followed and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, teacher, what are you saying? Or where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Now, ironic, this is so different than John the Baptist. We start to see grace paired with truth. Not repent and be baptized, but come and see. Follow me, come. When we walk along the way, we're going to talk a little bit. It's that relationship building. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the that, that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So the two disciples here are Andrew and John, and Jesus says, come and see. And what, what is cool is they actually followed him. They, they didn't just recognize and agree with John. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's the Lamb of God, and then just keep going. No, they followed him. They didn't just say, hey, Baptist, you're right. John, the, okay. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but they actually followed him. And, and I truly believe that that is where some of us are. We have John in our life that has pointed out who Jesus is, and we go, hey, you're right. And then we do nothing about it. We need to be following Jesus. We have to do something with our belief. We have to walk forward toward Jesus and not just stay in that position. Very soon after, John, uh, after this, John is grabbed by the Romans. He's killed, or, or what we like to say is he was martyred. He died for his faith. Now, I like to think about weird stuff, and one of the weird things uh, this week was the fact that Jesus could have asked John the Baptist to be one of his disciples, right? I mean, that would have been natural. Hey, John, come on over, join my ministry, everybody will follow you, and it'll just be a natural thing here. Now, if you think that, you know, that... It, uh, I mean, think about all the stuff that Peter 
and did. Peter did and, and the disciples. And we like to laugh at Peter, but imagine if John would have been around. John the Baptist in that group. That would have been a lot of fun, wouldn't it? The, things that he, the problems that he would have caused, the things that he would have said would have been awesome. But, but that was not his job. And I, I know, I, I get weird and I need to go on in my notes. So. But, the, but there have been times when, when, when others, the Lord, uh, where, where there was others that the Lord could really use, but he chooses to use a specific per- person for a specific reason. And we sit back and we look at somebody God is using and go, him or her? Why would you use that person? I think this other person would be much better. And the Lord says, you know what? I've been doing this for a while, so let me handle that job, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, we're like, well, what is my job, Lord? And he says, I'm glad you asked because I've been trying to tell you and you haven't been listening because you've been paying attention to everybody else. You're focused on other people instead of asking me, what should I be doing in service to you, Lord? Now, back to the word, when they were following, started following Jesus, he turned around and he asked him a really cool question. What do you seek? You see, they're seeking. Not everyone is a seeker. A seeker is someone who's interested enough to investigate. There's certain things that we go, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting, you know, I, I got two boys, and they come up with all sorts of things, and they come to me, and they, they present it to me, and I'm like, you know, or, or they're, hey, look at this, and I'm like, eh, okay, that's great. But then there's other times, and they come, and they show me something, I'm like, that's really cool, and I get out my iPhone, or they, they send me a file, or, or something, and I start looking into it, I, I'm seeking, I'm investigating, and, that's, and, and this is a really cool thing, is when you seek, you will find, Right? When you sit on the couch, do you find something? No. When you seek something, when you actually put effort into it, you're looking for it. And their answer is interesting. Where are you staying? They're saying, we want to get to know you better before we know the answer to what we're seeking. And this is what seekers do. They show up and they hang out. And this is why it's so important to understand hanging out and the reasons why we do it. But to them, to hang out with Jesus, man, that begins when we start loving the Lord, getting into his word, seeking after God. And this is the cool thing. Jesus promises if you seek, you will find. If you are honest and you're seeking the truth, you will find the truth. And it comes with a truckful load of grace. Some people are seeking because they're looking for the truth. Some people are seeking because life has fallen apart, so they're going to try God. And that's not a bad thing. And both those are are very legitimate ways of seeking. However, some people are seeking the Lord because they're looking for happiness. I'm unhappy. Let me try Christianity. This may or may not work for them because what they're looking for is a feeling. It's not that inner joy that the Holy Spirit gives and lives within us that says, man, my life is really messed up now, but I know the Lord is in control and I'm okay with it. I know one thing, God is not wringing his hands right now in heaven, going, oh, 
I'm so worried about what's going to happen in Russia. Is it going to go into World War III? Is it going to get bigger? Is it going to, are they going to attack Paul? The, Lord's, the Lord knows what's going to happen. He's not wringing his hands. He is still in control. Therefore, I can be happy because he knows. I can have joy. That's what it's called, inner joy. Not I feel good today. My health is good. My bank account is full. Therefore, I'm happy. That's, that's just feelings. Not, I caught a whole bunch of fish in Canada, and the other guys caught nothing, and I feel great because then the next day I go out and I catch nothing, and they catch fish. That's not where my joy comes from. That's just earthly happiness. Now, you will experience a great day when you understand that your sins are gone, when the Holy Spirit enters into our life, and, and, and we start to, to act upon that. This happened to the disciples in the book of Acts, and, and they were so happy that everyone thought they were drunk and out of their mind. And we experience this emotional happiness when God is active in our life. But one thing I know is that comes and goes, the emotional happiness. This is like every other relationship you have ever been in. That's the infatuation part of the romance but with Jesus, it should be different. Many times we come to Christ. He takes our burdens, and all of a sudden, life feels great because we had more burdens than we thought. And life is cruising along, and then somewhere you know, out of the side, a big old truck comes and hits us, and we pray, but it's not instantly taken care of. And some people's reaction is they walk away. And we have to get back to the question that Jesus had, what are you seeking? Because Jesus' promise is for joy, which is totally different than happiness. Joy is an underlying feeling. It's a new wine that he's poured into old religion. And when we study this in chapter 2 at Cana, um, new wine is poured into that old religion. And I promise you joy, he says, not always happiness. So this is the reality for us. If we seek Jesus, if we truly seek Jesus, we might be surprised, but we won't ever be disappointed. We might even change our values. We may even change the desires that it's in our heart. Did you know that when you trust the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart? It's a promise. That's what the scriptures say. And we go, great, because I got a lot of great desires, you know? But what happens is he starts changing us and molding us to become more like him. And all of a sudden, our desires change to be his desires. Isn't that fascinating how that happens? You know, I, but some of us are like, but, but I want the other desires. And he's like, yeah, th those aren't any good for you. Because I know what would happen if I gave you those. We're like, I want this and this and this and this. But we read the scripture and we start to understand that what happens is when we seek him, he changes us. What's really cool is that when we truly seek him, when we find him, we should be going out and grabbing other people to bring them to him. Verse 40, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what Jesus had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ Christ. 
and he brought him to Jesus. This is a beautiful picture of what we should be doing. We should be going out there saying, I have the answer, and it's not me, but it's God. It is Jesus. He died for our sins and bringing people back to experience him. This guy, Andrew, was a really cool guy. We don't know a lot about him, but, but already he's a great guy because, he, <coughs> one, he's seeking truth by following John the Baptist. He was a truth seeker. But also, as soon as he met Jesus, he spends one day with Jesus, and then he goes out and gets his brother Peter and brings him back. Now, they called him, you may be thinking, well, you said Simon. Well, they called him Simon. Shimon is what they would have called him. Peter is his Greek name. Simon was a, was, was a common Jewish name. So he brings him to Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, Jesus looked at him and said, and what's interesting is he doesn't even introduce him to Jesus. Jesus already knows his name. Jesus already knows us before we actually even come to him. He's already waiting for us, and he says to him, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. Cephas, Cephas, however you want to say that. Would it be cool if we could do this to everyone we meet? Hey, your name is Ralph. I'm going to call you Paco from now on. You know, just pick a name, you know. It'd be kind of fun. Wait, no, don't do that to me. Okay, we'll, we'll stop. What is Jesus doing here? He is identifying something in Simon that he doesn't yet see in himself. Peter means rock or stone in Greek. I could imagine Andrew saying, no, he, he's not a rock. He's more like a pebble in our shoe. You know, that one that we sit in there trying to shake our leg and get, you know, when it gets into our flip-flops or something and you're trying to get it out and it's a bug in you. You take a few steps before you can get it out. That's who Peter is. But it seems to me that it goes right past Andrew here and says to Simon, you're a rock. Get over here, Rocky. And this is so cool because everyone else judges us on our past accomplishments, right? I mean, Gary, I mean, very appropriately, and is, is my, he's saying, let me tell you about it, the history of myself so you can understand where I'm coming from as I talk about this. But we do that to everybody. Oh, we meet somebody new, and after a while, we're like, well, what do you do? Right? It's a common question. What jobs have you had in your life? Because we like to categorize people in certain ways. That's just very natural for us. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's like, Hi. What is your name? Oh, I already know your name. I don't have to, you don't have to introduce yourself to me. He's saying, I'm not judging you on what I know you're going, I'm, or on what, what happened in the past. I'm judging you on what you're going to be. That is really cool. That's a great thing about our Lord and Savior. He really knows us. He doesn't judge us on our sins. He doesn't judge us on the past things. He wants to take us from here to a better place. And the more I become like Jesus, the more I start to realize this is not about the past. This is about the future. The future of recognizing the past for what it is, but what you're going to do from this day forward. 
See, Jesus is judging us on what we're going to do. Who are you going to be? We don't think we're worthy. We don't think we're worthy to stand near Jesus. Yet we look at these disciples and it gives us hope because we see the goofiness that they went through. We see the fights that they went through. But Jesus saw what they would do to change the world. And he sees us for what we can do to change the world. And now we're being called Rocky or whatever Jesus names us. And he starts to call him the rock. And he calls him this from this day forward. And guess what? Peter slowly turns into what? The foundation of the modern church. I mean, the foundation is Jesus. But upon Jesus were the disciples. And the church is slowly built upon that. And it changes him from the inside out. Verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. Ironically, he found Philip. And all these guys were from the Bethsaida area, and, and they didn't think to go get Philip, but Jesus looked for him. And, and this is so cool, because some people are brought to Christ by family. But others, you ask them how they became a Christian, and they say, I'm not really sure. Jesus just grabbed a hold of me. Jesus found me and dragged me into this. And that's a really cool thing. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And we see that both Philip and Nathaniel are students of the law. They've studied the word of God. And, 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 you know, they were probably Bible study partners or something. And he's like, you won't believe this. In verse 46, it says, uh, you know, one guy's all excited and the other goes, Nazareth. Can anything good come from Na Nazareth? You know, uh, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. And he's thinking, no, there's no way. But Philip said to him, and look who he sounds like. He already, he already sounds like Jesus, right? Come and see. How long has he been following Jesus? It's amazing how long when Jesus gets a hold of us, how quickly we can become like him in certain ways. And this is cool about Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, because what's interesting is um, Nathaniel almost misses out on being one of the twelve. One of the 12 disciples. And it's all because of what? Nothing good can come from there. I mean, Nazareth, I mean, you know, give me a break. His preconceived notion of, you know, about, about Nazareth. You know, I read Micah, and Micah says it comes from, you know, it comes from Bethlehem. So no, 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 not him. See, Nazareth, Nazareth was considered a corrupt Roman town. And, you know, he'd be like, well, okay, whatever, that, that's how you feel, man. But he doesn't develop a six-month plan to pl change his mind, but he says, what does he say to him? Come and see. You see what happens here? He comes to Nathaniel, and the other guys are watching to see what happens, and they've been through this. Uh, I'm wondering if they're all standing around going, okay, watch this. You know, and they're just sitting there watching what's going on. And they've been through this, and they know Nate, and they know how he is, and they know that he questions everything. And they're sitting there thinking, wait till Nate meets this guy. It's going to be awesome. 
In verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I mean, what a compliment, right? I'm sure Peter's already saying, you called me the rock. That's not fair. See, the root of, ja uh, the, root of the word means Jacob. He called him basically, here comes a guy who's like Jacob. Now, Jacob is who? Israel. That's a good compliment, sort of, when you go back and study it. So Jesus is doing a whole word play here, but he knows this because he's a student of the Bible. So Nathaniel is pretty even killed, you know, not easily flattered. He basically says to him in verse 48, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. I mean, give me a break. You don't even know who I am. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Wasn't the apple tree, it wasn't the pear tree. It was about 14 miles away. I saw you there under the fig tree. Now, Nathaniel has something he can't explain. And I think for those that are highly educated, faith sometimes is harder for them, especially if you come to Christ late in life. There's that battle that goes on because you're, you're you know, smart people, they're so logical sometimes. But you've got to marry logic with faith to be able to believe. Faith is harder sometimes to come by. He says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. In other words, I was there. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And he is serious. And I love Jesus' answer here because it shows the humor of Christ that we often ignore. We think Christ is so stoic, you know. I, I bet you Christ loved to laugh. I bet you he had a blast with these disciples, you know, especially with their, their goofiness and their not understanding and, and Jesus pointing it out and all that. But Jesus says, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what he's saying here is he's revealing to Nathaniel the things that he's been studying. I, I just gave you a glimpse, man. Wait until later, and you're going to see some awesome things. Nathaniel, no doubt, had been probably studying Jacob and Jacob's ladder, and we're studying it, and, and, and you know, he's sitting there going, I knew it. I've been searching for a long time here, but when I found you, I knew who you were. And Jesus is like, are you going to follow me or not? And very logically, what does he say? Yeah, you're the leader, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. That's an important thing that all of us hear, because I was back there. You all took communion, so I understand this. All of you here have said to Jesus, I'm going to follow you. The question I have for you is, is he going to change your life like he did the disciples? He can change your future. Are you going out there saying, look, I found the Messiah and bringing your friends toward the Lord or not? That's what we need to be doing. That's what we're about. Jesus says, go and make disciples. How can we make disciples if we're not going? That's a hard question, isn't it? 
What are you doing in your going? That's a good question. That's a question you should ask Jesus this week. Lord, what do you want me to do for you? It may be something really small, simple. It may be something big. But that's between you and God. I'm not going to tell you what you should be doing. That's between you and God. So why don't the worship team come up and lead us in the last song, and we'll pray while they come up. Let's stand as they come up. Lord, so many times, so many people you came up to and you said, come and see. Or you said, follow me. And many did, Lord, and, and I, I thank you for all those that, that are here that, that said that at one time. Lord, don't let us rest. Don't let us just sit there. Let us be about your business, about how you want us to act in this life and who you want us to go to and say, come and see. Increase our numbers. Increase the numbers of the churches in Tulare that we may be a beacon in this dark world, that we may be a beacon in California of all places that they can see the light of God, that our government's not the answer, our leaders are not the answer, the world governments aren't the answer, you are the answer, Lord. You're the person that we should be seeking. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may you be blessed when you seek him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.